want to thank uh, everybody who came out this morning to get some breakfast here with us. Um, it was an honor to flip pancakes for you. Um, now everybody knows that I wear holy garments underneath my clothes. Um, apparently I have a lot of holes on the back of my undershirt here, uh, which is hilarious to everyone, including my wife, because she repeatedly tells me to throw them away, and I just won't because they still hang from my body. Um, usually I don't just walk around with my white t-shirt on. Um, Courtney handed me the, the total of, that people gave, and it's uh, $1,177.52. So thank you very much. Many, many thanks. Um, those apparently were very good pancakes. So thank you very much, seriously. Um, we're looking forward to, to moving towards India. Uh, I, one thing that we, you could just be in prayer for, just besides generally for our team, uh, certainly we've got kind of an eye on what's going, over, going on over in Asia in regards to the coronavirus and stuff like that. So obviously we just want to be praying for that region that God would bring healing uh, expertise, um, and hopefully we, we're, we're trusting that we'll still be able to go uh, and that it won't move into India. I, I searched, uh, I Googled India coronavirus, and the news, because they don't have, they've had two cases there, and apparently they're big on some sort of fruit drink that is, uh, they feel good about. Um, I don't know. I want more than a fruit drink. My, that's uh, just how I feel before we go over there. Um, uh, today, uh, starting today, uh, we are accepting, we're taking names for the, for the nomination committee uh, vote, which will be three weeks from today at a congregational meeting. So remember this year, if you give us a name, it's going on the ballot and people will vote on it. So make sure the name that you give us, that person has agreed to have their name put on the ballot. Um, and those will all be on the paper. We'll also, at that meeting, vote on how the rules for the committee, how they're supposed to work, how, how big it is, and uh, what percentage of people who are related to people on the committee can be nominated for office, all that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll, get, we'll email out to you those, those potential, a draft of those rules, and obviously it's your rules, so you can change it however you want. We'll just make suggestions for you. So we need names. We need several names, so get to thinking, talk to your friends or people you respect, whatever, and as soon as you give us the name, then we'll put it on the ballot and vote on it in, in three weeks. So also save some time after church, three weeks. Uh, the 22nd, uh, we'll have that meeting to, to vote for that. Um, today, we are in Revelation chapter 10 and 11. I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 8 of chapter 10, and then all of chapter 11. It's relatively short, chapter 11, but it'll be a long read. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull one from the pew and use that. In the beginning of this chapter, uh, John sees an angel coming down from heaven, and there's a description of this angel, and he stands with his one foot in the sea and one foot on the land, and his voice is thundering with seven thunders. He describes this roaring voice. 
And in verse 8, it says, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I, eat, I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I'll grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified three and a half days Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word the word that you send forth, the word that you sent into the world. We pray that our ears would be open. We pray that you would help our hearts to see what John saw. We pray, God, that we would be brought to the place that the elders were brought, that upon seeing you, we would worship you. 
and trust and adoration. We trust you to do this with us this morning in the hearing of this word. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This, uh, this little unit of story is, is right at the end of the, the sixth trumpet being blasted. And if you remember, uh, after the sixth trumpet was blown, uh, there's the report that though all these terrible things have happened upon the earth, uh, the people have not repented. And that's clearly what the trumpets were designed to do. This demonstration of power and of judgment has not brought about repentance. And so this thing happens then where John is being uh, recommissioned or, or given finally the word that he is meant to tell. So in chapter 10 is the story of him being given the word. And in chapter 11, we get this picture of these two witnesses who are commissioned by God. Uh, in chapter 10, it's the image of this little scroll that he's given to eat. And in this passage, John is pretty transparently using uh, the same kind of imagery and vocabulary that Ezekiel uh, used, Zechariah and Daniel used in their visions. And Ezekiel's vision, similarly, uh, he comes to an angel who extends with his, the same thing, his right hand, a scroll extended to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is told to do the same thing, is to eat the scroll. Uh, and, and John does the same thing. And his, his response to that eating is, is a little different. He tastes it sweet in his mouth like honey and bitter in his belly. He's got, a, he's got a little bit of a tummy ache after he has it because of the word that he has to give. Now, I, I think that we're meant to see this scroll as the scroll that is being cracked open uh, in these seven seals that we already talked about. That this is, the, this is the message that the Lamb is cracking open, and now John is being commissioned to give that word of judgment. We know it's a word of judgment. But in the meantime, these, he sees these two witnesses, and John is given a task as these witnesses are, are appointed. In, in your text, well, the one that I read out loud, uh, it says... He was given a rod, which is probably not the best word to describe what that word is. He's given a reed, uh, a plant, a long reed to measure out the temple. And, and where it says that he's to exclude the court, uh, we read that in chapter 11 at the beginning. Uh, in chapter 2, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. It, it doesn't actually say leave that out. It says throw it out. Measure the temple, measure the altar and everything, leave out, throw out, don't count the outer courts, because those are being left to the nations. Um, this measuring that he's doing with this reed uh, is, is something that's in congruence with what God tells his people to do when they're building and setting aside a temple. Peter Lightheart says, it's holy things that are measured. And so he is measuring the, the temple, he is measuring the parts that are holy, and he is in some sense excluding that which is not holy. And that part is being left to the, to the mixed company of people. The nations are, are left on the outside of the temple, and that part is now unholy. And the two witnesses come, and, and the language that he uses here for witnesses is important because this is a reoccurring theme. A witness is just a, is the, another word, it's the literal word for martyr. 
These are two more martyrs in our martyr story. There is Jesus, the chief martyr. We've had 144,000 martyrs. We have the martyrs gathered around the throne and under the throne. And here we have two more martyrs. So even in the language we're being prepared, what's definitely going to happen to them. In some sense, we are unsurprised when we see them speak powerfully. They have these demonstrations of power that are right in line with all kinds of prophets in the Old Testament. They, there's fire and there's this, the heavens are shut up just like Elijah does. And then they're impervious for a while, but then the beast comes. And there's just this sudden mentioning of a beast. There's not been a beast until this time But the beast from the abyss where these previous demon, locust, scorpion things were last time, this beast from that same place pops up and he is allowed to kill them. And they're slain. Their bodies lay there. And people rejoice because these people, these witnesses, have terrorized them. And then three and a half days after they've died, The the wind of God, the breath of God moves and calls them and says, come up here. And then you have this final scene at the end of chapter 11 that is, again, what we've seen several times now, this kind of foretaste of the end. It's this musical hint of what the crescendo is going to be, where where the elders are starting to sing the kingdoms of God. The kingdom of God has become the kingdom of the world. And he is worthy of adoration as the reigning king. John, uh, throughout this, in in both 10 and chapter 11, is drawing our eyes to the, the measurement, the judgment, the work of the word in the world. And how the, the word of God comes in and interrupts and changes and inaugurates and does something that changes everything. In chapter 11, uh, you have this repeated reference to these periods of time. And they're all three and a half. 42 months is three and a half years. 1260 days, same thing by a different measurement. One is a lunar measurement, one is a solar measurement, three and a half years. And they're given the the license to preach for a certain amount of time, three and a half months, and then they're dead for three and a half days. In the biblical mind, the seven is a number of completion. It's a whole. And so a three and a half is an interruption of the whole. It's it's an invasion and an inbreaking and a breaking of what is the expected completion. What the people are waiting for is the completion of judgment. So then that all the the bloodshed of the martyrs would be over. And instead of that reaching its fullness of time, there is an inbreaking. And here in this moment in Revelation, there's this kind of drawing in of breath as we're about to move forward again so that there will finally be a fullness and a completion. Now, the kind of stars of of this show, or so it seems, is is these two witnesses. Everybody wants to know, who are these guys? They seem really big. And, And, of course, there is like thousands of years of people speculating on who these people are. And it's just like a really fun game that commentators like to play. Who are these two witnesses? And you have kind of two, three basic options. You have 
a way of viewing these people as symbolic. You have uh, a way of viewing these people as uh, Old Testament figures that are brought forward. Maybe this is Elijah and Moses. Uh, some, a lot of people tend to like Jeremiah because Jeremiah says the word is like a, a fire shut up in his bones and they're breathing fire, so maybe Jeremiah is involved in there. Some people just pick people that are contemporaneous with them and pick these two preach. The reformers love to look at this passage and say it's these two guys who are preaching against the Pope and people who are before them pick their favorite teachers. So you have the idea it's people who live with me, it's Old Testament prophets from the past, and you have the idea that these are symbolic representations. I think with the logic of Revelation, it makes the most sense to see them in concert with this succession of martyrs, not as distinctive historical people, but as representatives of all of these people who are doing this thing. The 144,000, the martyrs under the throne, they are all called to this task And it is these two people who represent all of these people and this task. There's a way of seeing this. This is, is this the Old and the New Testament that speak together? Or, I think is more likely, John wants us to hear that the place from which they are sent is the holy temple of God. These are the people who are the full completion of the people of God, who are not banished out into the temple courts. These are the Jews and Gentiles, two people made one. The church speaking with authority. And this helps us, these these images in both 10 and 11, the way that John swallows the word and it's sweet in its mouth and, and bitter in his belly, the way these witnesses speak the word, preach the word, and it is, uh, it's like a fire echoing out and it's issuing destruction. It's also by the words that they are resurrected. These things are pointing again and again as the people of God, and I think the people who originally heard this word are reminded that we serve a God who speaks. We serve a God who reveals himself. And we are fundamentally a people of his word. The the way that God has disclosed himself to the world is an important characteristic of our God, the Christian God, the God of Israel, the God that we worship, And it is His Word that marks out what is holy and what is not. It is His Word that establishes where the boundaries of the temple are. It is His Word that even is a word of destruction to us when we hear it. That it can be sweet on our lips, but it can make us sick to our stomachs. Who has not heard the Word of the Lord and listened attentively, and not felt sick to your stomach, and realize the Word has stood over you, and pierced you, and found you wanting. This is an important aspect of, of what we believe about the Word. It's easiest to live a life where you put the words of God in the mouth of God. Where you put the thoughts that are in your mind and place them in the thoughts of God. It's easiest to describe and put what I want, paste that onto the heavens and say that is the way that God is. 
And you can do that in any number of ways by not even thinking about God. You can do it through private, mystical experiences. You can do it together as a group in pursuit of common aims. But it is normal, it is natural to put your words and my words in the mouth of God. And inevitably when that happens, it is a word solely of comfort that you put in the mouth of God. Because God basically becomes your sock puppet to talk to you. How are you today, God? Doing great. I love you. Wow, thanks, God. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. I love you and everything about you. Of course, you don't do this. I hope you don't do this, literally. But it is a way that we behave towards God naturally. Because what we most want to hear from God is everything that we just want to hear. But that is not the characterization of the Word in Scripture itself. The characterization of Scripture is that it is sharp. It cuts. It divides. It wounds. And it can make you sick to your stomach. Because you hear the truth about God. You hear the truth about yourself. And something quails inside of you. Because you realize the distinctiveness. God is not my sock puppet. God is not the one over whom I'm in control. I do not stand as Lord and Master over God. He stands as Lord and Master over me. That causes us at times to shrink. And there's a real sense in which the Word of God, spoken by the faithfulness of His people, the Word in the mouth of His people, really does move forward like a fire of judgment. That is real. Because a faithful church doesn't just say the things that they know their people want to hear. A faithful church echoes Scripture and allows Scripture to stand over and to bring a word of death, that thing that is in you, this thing that you have built your identity around, this thing that you have put your hopes upon, that thing must die. And God speaks this way to His people, to His very own people. And He speaks this way to the world because He refuses to allow pretenders to his throne. The other things that we wish God would say to us, the security blankets of our life, the comforts that we choose in our world, God refuses to let his people keep them because they're false. The idols of chapter 9 are still at play in chapter 10 and 11. The idols still don't have eyes or mouths or ears to see or speak or hear. They are false gods. They are pretenders. And God refuses to let his people keep hold of them. And he refuses to keep his voice silent to the world. This is a fundamental and important thing about the God that we serve. We don't believe that God is somewhere out there in the universe hopeful that we'll maybe figure it out. 
God is not somewhere sitting in the dark or removed entirely from the world and said, you know what, I've put enough breadcrumbs out there in the world. I hope you got it, guys. I, I hope you get there. But instead, we believe in a God who comes close and brings a revelation of himself. John's gospel opens in John chapter 1 with a description of this movement. that The whole world was made through the Word. And the Word who was with God and also was God came into the world. And there was darkness everywhere, but He, He's the light of life. And he steps into the darkness to illuminate everything so that you and I would not be left stumbling, groping in darkness. And John tells us very clearly, the tragicness of that event is that the people that he made, those very ones, his own people, they did not recognize him, but instead clung to their blindness. And yet God comes in tabernacles with his people. That's what John says in chapter 1. He tents up with his people, as Eugene Peterson says, moves into the neighborhood so that you would know he discloses himself because he wants you to know him. What was the aim at the end of these trumpets of judgment in chapters 8 and 9? That you would repent, that you would come home. He wants you to know him. And the nature of this word is a collision and confrontation. It does speak a word of death to the things that are inside of us that are opposed to him. But this word is also sweet. It is sweet to tell. Because the sweetness of this word is fully realized and understood in the chief witness himself. The chief witness is the word who is Jesus. The chief witness to this revelation, the fullness, the fullest disclosure of this revelation is the lamb that has been slain. He is the one who steps close to you and I, face to face, so that you might look at him and know this is what God is like. This is what you are called to repent of and come to. The tragedy that is in Jesus' gospel, uh, in, in the gospel of John that John wrote, the tragedy that's here in Revelation 10 and 11 is that this place where this is happening is Jerusalem. Did you catch that in the text? The place where the martyrs are killed is given a new name, Sodom and Egypt, but it is the place where the Lord was crucified. It is a mistake to believe that your geography or your heritage or your lineage puts you in the inner courts of the temple. It is instead your proximity to and your relationship to the Word. It is the Word that is delivered to you that you must respond to. 
It is, it is not enough. Just as the people of Israel said time and again, we are from Abraham. We are born of Abraham. That is surely enough and proves we are children of God. And Jesus says, no. And it is, it is terribly easy to say, I've grown up in the church. I've come to church like at least 40 times a year for my whole life. Come to Sunday school. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I vote the right way. I give the right way. That is not the question. The question is, do you hear the Word? And have you responded to it? The Word is Jesus. Have you come into confrontation with Him? And have you responded to Him? In the church, you and I hear this Word to remind us of our identity. That we are the people shaped and formed by the, the God who reveals Himself, the self-revelator, the God who speaks as servants of the Word because this text and all of Scripture is inviting you to follow straight in His footsteps. Because not only are you invited to hear the Word, but you are invited to speak it. It is not enough to just hear the Word. If you rightly hear the word and obey it, you must speak the word and become one of these two witnesses. This is my destiny as much as it is theirs because it is my Lord's destiny. It is not given to me to think that just because I follow Jesus because I love Him and I've responded to the Word, that, that I get a hundred years of days appointed to me. It is not enough to just get a long life and be a good person and respond to the Word. I'm invited to be one of these people, to be one of these faithfully speaking members of this kind of church, to speak with these witnesses as one of these witnesses. And utter the same sweet as honey, bitter words of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are a people who are tied up in the Word. We cannot untangle ourselves from the Word. We are created by the speaking of God, by the revelation of God. And ultimately, this here is is a relocation of security. You don't get to have security in your material things. You don't get to have your security in your lineage. You don't get to have your security in your church attendance. Your security is ultimately held in the hands of the one faithful and true witness. And the response to this word can be as sweet or as bitter as the one that we've had ourselves. For a time, these witnesses are protected, but ultimately they are not. They lie dead in the streets and people are relieved. These people have spoken this word and it has been annoying. It has been troubling. They celebrate like it's Christmas because these witnesses die. 
And again, John pulls out this number. This number of completion interrupted. They lie in the streets for three and a half days. And then God speaks a word and says, come up here. And they're awake. They stay dead no longer, but they go up. And they follow through the ripped veil of Jesus' work and go into the inner courts of this heavenly temple. It is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Because Jesus' own body laid in the tomb for three days. It is Jesus' own suffering that they have followed into. And it is ultimately the same voice that these witnesses hear when they hear a word of resurrection. Because God is the God who speaks to his people. And even the grave cannot silence his voice. When the God who sits and rules from inside his temple speaks to his people and rolls with thunder like the voice of a lion roaring or of seven thunders. There is not even death that can stop your ears and stop you from hearing it. He speaks to His people and says, come up here. You and I are meant to live by this Word and inside of this Word. The Word is meant to be our habitat. The Word is meant to be our fuel. The Word is meant to orient us to the way that things are. The Word is our mission in everything that we do. The Word shapes us, changes us, and ultimately it is the Word who will resurrect us. It is our task to follow in this way of the Word. This word that that measures us out because of the work of Christ places us in the temple. It is this word that we speak as offering to people who are living outside in the courts for now. It is the word that we speak to one another that we might remind each other of of the sweetness of Jesus when things get painful and difficult and hard and feels like dying. We are people of the Word. So what does that mean for you? The question that you can ask very easily is how often does your Bible go from the shelf to open in your hands? How often do you Submit yourself to the speaking of the Word of God. When you come to the text, does the text master you or do you master it? When you come to the Word, does the Word get to speak with sharp edges to you? Does it get to wound you and heal all your wounds? I'm not saying that every encounter that you have with Scripture is is thrilling or emotional. But you have to be in the room with it. You have to be seated with it. You have to listen 
because you never know what it's going to say or do to you. The voice of God rightly reflects His own character and you cannot cage God. Is Scripture uncaged in your life? That is a living and vibrant thing that comes after you and wrestles you into the ground and speaks a good word to you. Is this word not just read by you and reading you, is this word in your mouth? Is it not just the word that you see and the word that you hear, is it the word that you speak? How often is the way that you talk shaped by Scripture? How often is the content of your speech shaped by Scripture? How often do you open up the jars and pour out the honey for all who might hear? Or is it just the thing that's on the desk or the bookshelf? Do you hear what the Word is describing this great ultimate and final witness who is Jesus? Are you following in His own life? God has invited you into His life. Continues to do it. Reveals Himself again and again. And what you have waiting for you is the God who will not be defeated. The unconquerable Jesus. The unconquerable Lamb who was slain and who will give you His life even when you face your own death. Have you been wounded and broken down and opposed and seemingly killed by others, killed by the weight of life? It is the resurrecting Word of God that will speak to you now and forever. Do you hear the coming crescendo? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. Do you hear the footsteps of the lion plodding slowly and steadily through history, surely coming to accomplish what He has promised. It is sometimes only that we can crawl to the edges of the Bible and plead to hear the echo of those footsteps. Sometimes it will be like a voice that thunders, and sometimes it will just be the echo of those thunders. But it is the breath of God that speaks, and it is the breath of God that will ultimately breathe through you now and forever that you might hear him say to you, come up here. Come and live with me. Come and dwell with me forever in a kingdom that has no end, forever the kingdom of Christ established finally by the blood of this best, final, chief martyr, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for this word that is alive and full of energy and vitality. We thank you that you have aimed it at us and spoken to us and over us. That you want us to know you. That you want us to, to say that we know what you're like and we know what you want. And that doesn't mean we, we know everything now. We take comfort that we now have your word. 
We thank you that the word came into the world that he made. And spoke into the darkness, turned on the lights. Father, I pray that we would be a people called and shaped by your word. God, I pray for those who are discouraged. Who, who just feel on the outside, who feel like they don't, they don't know how to be a kind of person who picks up a Bible. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself as the God of patience and mercy and tenderness. That you are as sweet as honey. But of all the ways that you called to people in the book of Revelation, it is, it is the death the tenderness, the fragility of these martyrs that finally elicits a repentative response from some. And it is your own death and weakness that calls to us. I pray, Father, that you would speak to those who are discouraged and burdened. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, the text would be enlivened to us and we would... Have it do its job in us and for us that it would reveal Jesus. That we would see Jesus everywhere in Scripture coming after us. Jesus, I pray for those who have not heard your voice, who may have heard about you, may have heard words of you, but they have never heard your voice speaking it. I pray, God, whether they are here or whether they are elsewhere, that you would break in, that you would interrupt their own week-long judgment, and you would speak instead a word of clear resurrection to them. That you would interrupt the, the normalcy of their life, and you would come in and reveal yourself to them. Jesus, help us to be a people who are attentive to your voice, listen to your word, and faithfully take it up and speak it alongside of you and behind you and with you. Help us to be word-shaped people, enlivened by the word and carried along by the promise of your word, that ultimately we will hear the same call as the martyrs. Come be with me. Thy kingdom, come with me. Make us that kind of people, Lord Jesus. We trust that you'll do it. As surely as you've disclosed yourself to us, we trust that you'll accomplish it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.